Hello and welcome to the podcast series Raw Talent with me, Fiona Abrahams, where I am deep diving behind the scenes into the careers, aspirations and inspiration of the many talented and skilled individuals who enable the fashion and creative industries to feed our passion for clothing and product. Throughout this podcast series, I will be reaching out to the global community, looking at the industry through their eyes, asking people to share insights about the work they do, how they got started, their most compelling experiences, the trials and tribulations they have faced and overcome, who they have met along the way, the lasting friendships formed, the part culture plays in the work they do, and their thoughts on the future of the industry following this pandemic. In episode six of Raw Talent, I am speaking with Naeem Riaz about technical innovation in fabric and garment construction. Naeem is one of the world's most experienced product development experts. Having worked with multinational companies and well-known sports brands, he has an intimate knowledge of manufacturing, costing, sourcing, and breaking technological boundaries throughout his global experience. He brings deep knowledge of garment manufacturing, machinery capabilities and smart clothing, which is really second to none. And we are going to explore some of the highlights of his career, working for names such as Liam Fung, Adidas, John Smedley and currently Prevail. Lovely to see you, Naeem. Welcome to Raw Talent. Thank you, Fiona. Nice to see you again. Yes, indeed. So I think we should start by um, telling everybody how we, how did our paths cross? Wasn't that so long ago? I, yeah, it was about oh, last October, September, October. I was working in the Midlands, at, um, one, uh, one of the UK's largest um, knitwear factories. Yes. Um, and with me being based in Manchester, it was a bit of a trek, going, you know, driving 50 miles up at 4.30 every morning. And then you were doing a massive commute, weren't you? That's right. And um, it was beginning to catch up with me. I've been there for about six months. Um, so that was one of the factors. There were a couple of other reasons. Regardless, I thought I needed to be closer to home. I was looking for opportunities in Manchester and you just happened to turn up at the right time and things just went from there. Um, spoke yeah, a couple of times and... Found myself working back in Manchester again about a month or so later. Yeah, absolutely. The start of a whole new adventure. Let's re- let's rewind back to the beginning. Let's tell everyone sort of where you grew up and what inspired you to um, work in the fashion and creative industries. How did you get started? Um, so it was more of um, a compulsion than an inspiration. So I was okay. I, I finished doing my A levels, and or while all my friends, you know, were taking the route down, you know, the university route and going to further education. We had a fantastic family clothing business um, back in the early 90s. My father had started it up in the early 80s, so it had been going for about 10, 12 years. Wonderful. Uh, what did he produce? What was the clothing? He was, was producing jumpers, so he was producing knitwear for the UK high street, for the European market, for the Amer- North American market. Amazing. And, and he essentially said to me, look, you're going to go to university for three or four years and then you're going to end up working for somebody. It's family business. We own it. Why not come and work for us? It'll be you know, a lot more convenient for you, you'll have a lot more opportunities. You know, you're going to come in as an apprentice, going to get your hands dirty and you're going to work from the bottom up. But ultimately, you know, I have to hand the business over to somebody someday. So um, why not? You know, what what, what have you got to lose? And if things don't work out, then you can always go back to university at any point. So that's what really, that's where I really started. Wise Um, words. So it was, um, 
it was more a case of okay what what, what is there to lose <laughs> Let, let's yeah. go for it yeah it was a really good that was really good of your dad to kind of put it to you in those terms so you got started and you worked your way up in the business yeah so um so initially it was um just we had you know big industrial and textile fabric producing machinery um so it was really literally from day one just getting stuck in you know taking machines apart you know, taking needles and elements out putting them back together again just getting comfortable with the machinery yeah. just and not not you know, when you leave school, you know, you put, you, you move from a sort of high academic environment into a workplace environment, yes. right, which involves machinery and grease and oil and dirt and dust, yeah, all different so. culture. And when you're 18, you know, that culture can be quite, um, the, the, the bridge in cultures can be quite um, vast. Yeah. So it was a bit of um, a rude awakening, but at the same time, it was welcome because it just helps you grow up as a person. Yeah, so I spent about three three months in the factory, and then there was um, in the whole of the UK, there was only one sort of technical college, um, based down in Hinckley, that yeah. taught textiles and machinery and how to produce fabrics and basically the whole garment trade. So it was a three year course. Um, so I started as you do in early September, um, literally three months after having started working in the factory, and. Basically, a three-year course, I completed that in just over a year. So wow. I got to the point where the lecturers were then coming back and asking me, how do we do this, how do we do this? Because technology oh, wow. and the industry was evolving so fast. And I was quite fortunate in that not only did I was I able to learn stuff from college, I was able to come back, implement it, put it on machinery, and then go and seek advice and knowledge and see how other people elsewhere in the world were doing things. So, you know, during holidays, I would travel over to Japan and different parts of the world and take part in training courses and learn how they were doing stuff. So that thirst for knowledge, that, you know, it wasn't really ever quenched. No. Whereas, others, whereas others were sort of mentally preparing for the next exam date or the next year or the next, you know, academic term. They were doing I was, the theory of it, but you were doing the theory and the practical. I was doing theory and the practical. And I was, read, I was basically because I was there by myself, out of, you know, away from home. I had nothing else to do, so I would just put my head down, get my, you know, get stuck into textbooks and pick up stuff that really I wasn't supposed to. And all of a sudden, you know, a year and sort of two, three months later, college literally said to me, "Look, there's no point in you being here because you already know more than we do." Um, so I finished there and spent the next sort of well, best part of sort of seven, eight years working in the factory, and then the work sort of started at a lower level, whereas where I was, you know, hands-on grease, dirt, getting comfortable with machinery. But because of all the sort of traveling and the knowledge that I'd acquired uh, and the practice that I'd had, I then started working with um, directly with UK high street designers. So this was before the era of email and text messages. People would literally have an idea. A designer for a high street store would have an idea. They would sketch it down on a piece of paper and fax it over to you. I want the mm-hmm. jumper that looks like this, or I want a cardigan that looks like this. And it was my job to convert that idea or sketch, bring it to life, make it into a garment and send it back to them. Are you happy with this? And then, Next thing you know, two, three days later, we'd get an order. And that's, I spent basically five, six, seven years just doing that. So, so wow. from, from converting a design idea to putting it on a machine to actually, you know, programming the machine, yeah. using the garment made up, getting an order. So that's, I was quite that fortunate. That's how you got started. That's yeah, amazing. That's was it predominantly knitwear or was it wavings as well? It was predominantly knitwear, um, yeah. but... And amongst that, there were, there were little bits of everything sort of thrown in. So there weren't, yeah. you know, whether yeah. it was like a twin set or something, you would always have to double in that kind of stuff. But yeah. ostensibly, all clothing, I, I know it sounds a bit cliched, but 
all clothing tends to be pretty much the same. You know, it's yeah. made in the same way. All involves needles, all involves yarns and fibres. So it's very you... true. That's very true. What an amazing start. That was just, that's incredible. I was, yeah. I was really, really lucky. I mean, there were, people, there were people who I know worked harder than me that just weren't lucky enough. So all I can do is just count blessings and just be grateful for what Yeah, I'm thanks, Dad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Some very good advice at the very beginning. Would you say that you've actively guided your the trajectory of your career, or would you say that you've reacted to opportunities in the market? Um, I've been quite active in the sense that I know that, and it's been guided by a principle that if I stand still, then there are ten other people who are after my position or my status or right. my position in the market. So okay. I can't afford to stand still because. For example, the job I'm doing right now, I'm doing this because I'm able to do it and I'm able to develop and invent new stuff because I know how to do it. Yes. If I don't do it, then there, you know, there are a dozen other people outside the building who will equally as capable as me as, of, of doing that. So I've got to take this opportunity with both hands and run with it and evolve and learn and evolve myself. Yeah. Put myself in a position where I'm, I'm ahead of the competition. That yeah. there's no other. So that's kind of what's guided my career trajectory. Yeah, so you're constantly always seeking to move forward and uh, be ahead of the game, <laughs> ahead of the crowd. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Looking back, what have been the major learnings from your experience? Um, again, it, I'll, I'll just come back to the fact that you've got to stay ahead of the game. You, you, okay. you can't afford to stand still. Even I, I know this sounds a bit crazy, but... You know, some some of the best ideas I've had is, you know, when you finish work for a day and you're frustrated and you can't think of anything, you know, it's okay to go home and switch off and put on the TV and, you know, just forget about work, work, leave work at work. But I just can't disengage. I'm there. I'm trying to overcome a problem. And, you know, it's got to live it. It circulates in your mind until you've got the answer. Yeah, yeah. And so you, it's not that you cannot afford to stand still because there are other people willing to take your place more than willing they're hungrier yeah. than you they're more desperate than you and they'll do things that you know you perhaps won't do so you're not doing yourself any favors by standing still and on top of that i'd say one of the big life lessons i've learned is again from my dad just be honest tell the truth Absolutely. don't be us um because yeah. you will get caught out and it, it's 100%, not worth it 100 transparency <laughs> is everything being honest just putting it laying it out it's it's the best way my my dad, he, he's one of these people where he doesn't really say much, but he's got this reputation, bless him, he's 89 now. Um, but wow. he's got this reputation and everybody that knows him, whenever you meet somebody, you know, they don't care about anybody else. So, you know, they've not met someone for 20 years, they won't bother, but the, people always ask about my dad. And, oh. and the main thing they remember about him is that he was always honest up front, said what was on his mind and he never lied. That's and they could, they, they could trust him with, with their lives and, you know, He'd always be there for them. And that, that to me is, you know, money comes, money goes, but it's that yeah. reputation, that respect and that integrity that always stays with you throughout your life. And Absolutely. That's what you try to hold as a human being, as a person, because yes. that, that is what enables someone like me to go back to a previous client mm -hmm. or a previous employer and say, can you help I, me you with know, this? Can you, can you do me a favor? And yeah. I'm back to um, sort of earlier on this year, sort of January, um, Lee and Fung, the, the, the world's biggest garment supplier. And I was basically able to ring up and say, hi guys, um, would you mind if I come over and spend a week using your facilities, using your machinery, using your resources and technicians free of charge because I need to do something. 
I never, I never had to ask twice. It was just like, fine, our door's always open for you. Oh, see, that's, and I think that's such an important lesson that you share there. And it's something I always try and um, reflect to candidates as well, um, or anyone that I come across in the industry, because there's, this is an industry that's also full of people that do not have such great integrity or have not been guided as effectively as your dad guided you and perhaps haven't had those values instilled. And actually, it's just being honest, laying it out, being able to have honest conversations with people. People respect you. That's how you gain respect. Whereas if you try and sweep things under the carpet or cover things up or try and just, you know, ignore them, it comes back and haunts you. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just a simple case of, yeah. you know, but, but someone seen me, a vice president of a company, you know, he's got friends, he's got colleagues in the rest of the office, but yet when it comes to break time, he comes to you because he wants to sit down and have a coffee with you because he knows you're not going to BS him. He knows you're not, you're not yeah, going to. He knows you can just have a straight conversation and you're just going to be honest. Exactly. And he, he, he has, you know, they, they seek your advice and they yeah. know that whatever you're going to come back is going to be genuine and honest. And yeah. that to me is a huge thing. And it's something that, you know, uh, bless him. It's something I learned off my dad. He didn't say yeah. to me, you must be honest, you must be this, but it's just, yeah. he's just leading by example. He led by example, absolutely. I think I think that's such an such an important point. What is it that makes you, apart from what you, the, the the traits that you've just described, if we're talking about your actual knowledge of machinery and garment construction, fibre and yarn, what are the things about those that make you great at what you do? What is it within your knowledge that you've I, learned? I've been really really lucky in that I've been able to and I've been allowed to work in across a whole range, a whole plethora of industries and organizations where I've had access to all sorts. So yeah. you go from like really, really heavyweight, you know, wool, you know, almost rug type knits down yeah. to your fine compression sportswear garments. So it's the to, breadth and depth really of yeah. the different types of um, applications, machinery required to produce things, the different construction yeah. techniques. Yeah, and it's never, and again, it comes back to being honest and open with people and having those yeah. friendships, having that network of people. So, you know, you, you will come across, I mean, I'm not perfect. So I'm not the, you know, most knowledgeable person in the world. I'll be the first to admit that. No, you know, you, you learn stuff before. every day, but at the same time, you've, you've got to be comfortable and open and honest enough to go to somebody and say, I don't understand this, please, can you help me with it? But you can Absolutely. only do that when they trust you and you can trust them. Yes, because everybody so, has... So, specialist knowledge of certain things so it's being able to tap into that so uh, for example when i first started working at um john smedley's um yes back, back last year so yeah again, that um, was that was very very fine gauge you know really really refined high quality knitwear yeah but there were certain things that i didn't you know the, the, they had certain should we call them odd or peculiar processes that i didn't understand <laughs> So things that didn't sort of make sense of why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah. Um, so rather than, you know, sort of, you know, raise my eyebrows and give them that sort of sneering, sort of patronizing, you know, was, which was, you know, the obvious thing to do. I, okay, why do you do this? Why, why is it happening? Why have you chosen to do this when there's much, much easier it. way of doing it? Yeah. But you do it, you know, in a sort of inquisitive way, a respectful way. Of course. And, and then, you, you know, the feedback that you get, it comes back with, you know, it's not something that perhaps relates directly to why they're doing it, but it's something that's maybe three or four steps later on down the line. So, for yeah. example, I produce a piece of fabric, but I know I could produce it, you know, 10 times faster doing it a certain way. But they were doing it for a particular reason because a sewing machinist, you know, six, seven steps later on down the line, wanted it done that way to make her life easier, to make her job easier, you know, and machine 
the robot, it does what you tell it to do, but a, a machinist or a linking machinist, you know, it's a manual job, you know, she yes. can suffer from wrist injury or other sort of injuries that make her life easier. So again, if you don't... If you don't if have you don't, a picture, you can't judge what you see on the surface. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So you've got to you've got to be open and, you know, willing to engage with people and learn. You know, yeah, stuff you, they surprise you. They may give you answers like that, that, you know, suddenly when they explain it, it's like, oh, right, okay. And then maybe you think of an idea to improve it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and, no, it makes okay. sense. And how would you describe your management style? Like where you've managed people or you've managed teams, how do you like to manage? I try to take the hierarchy, the structure out of it. We're just two people talking. Brilliant. And that's yeah. how it's always, always, always. Whether it's people coming and wanting to talk to me and learn stuff, I'll engage them as though I'm talking to my own family member or my own child or, you know, yes. or, you know, my, my own dad or you know, similarly. <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm meeting someone senior than myself, again, but, you know, their time is short. They've got a million other things on their mind that I, I'm not privy to. They're under stress. They've probably slept less than I have, and so you want to make you want to make life easier for them. And you, you know, you just got to, you've just got to understand the person you're talking to and why why you're having this conversation in the first place. And only then can you really engage with them in in a, in a proper manner. Um, and ultimately, as long as you realise that you're talking to another human being who has issues and who has problems, and they're talking to you for a reason, that's the way I try, I tend to find it works best for me. Brilliant. I think that's a really good. Um illustration of you know how to work with people and you know similarly if you're managing the expectations of those above you how do you approach that you you engage with them because you you tend to find in any typical organization the higher up the chain you go the perhaps less you're involved in the nuts and bolts the sort of detail of the day-to-day running or you're working on so you you have to sort of change or adapt your language to accommodate that level of understanding. And do you, so you seek to, to kind of educate and seek to kind of paint the picture so that they have all the facts? Yeah, what, what you tend to find is people higher up than you, they're not really interested in why you've done what you've done or how you've produced this thing, you know, what was the process involved. They're more interested in, okay, how will this impact our bottom line? How will this impact deadlines yeah. or performance? Or, yeah, and absolutely. You, you have to sort of filter your conversation or your, you know, your, your discussion to accommodate that and try and understand why they're asking you that question in the first place. Um, and again, all of this is born out of respect and an understanding that, you know, whatever you're saying to them is honest and open. If you're going to be late with something, you tell them you're going to be late. You don't make excuses. Oh, it's because the machine was broken or this, that. And no, you just straighten. That, that's the way it's happened. Obviously, we're, we're in lockdown right now. And, you know, it was very easy to turn around and say, sorry, factories are closed, you know, machinery showrooms are closed, sample rooms are closed. I can't produce the latest, you know, fabric piece of technology that you're you're after. But, you know, I sat down, start of lockdown, right? This is what I'm planning on doing. You know, the machine sample rooms in the you know in the Midlands and down south are closed. I've got no access for the foreseeable future. Okay, so this is where I am right now. Give me two or three days. I'm going to try and find actual factories who have a similar type of machine. I'm going to engage with them. I'm going to you know I'm going to offer them an hourly rate, just the same as we offer other people. You know, we'll negotiate with them and maybe I can carry on working somewhere locally in Manchester, a local factory. Three days later, I found a factory and Amazing. we've been working. Amazing. Well, there's, a, there's a huge network of factories around Manchester. So, yeah, yeah that's absolutely brilliant. 
And what would you say your most um, are your observations on the most effective way to be influential in a business? Get stuck in. Don't, <laughs> That's a good don't, one. don't hold back. Don't yeah. hold back. Um, you, you cannot lead by example by giving, you know, emotional speeches or, you know, you, you, you've got to demonstrate, you've got to, people aren't stupid. You know, you can talk all the talk you want, but ultimately at the end of the day, it's your actions that command respect. Yeah, you've got to walk and, the walk. It. And to, to me, that would be all and end all. You know, if, if you can roll your sleeves up and get stuck in and, you know, whether I'm in a, on a factory floor in Bangladesh or in a board meeting in Hong Kong, it's still the same thing. You know, as long as people yes. have seen, you know, I'm, I'm equally as comfortable in both environments. And on the factory floor in Bangladesh or China, you know, if, if a knitter or a machine operator doesn't know how to do something, you, physically, you do it yourself and you show them. You get stuck yes. in. But the moment you do that, the moment you get your hands dirty, the moment you get stuck into a machine, all of a sudden, everyone around you suddenly looks at you in a completely different way. <laughs> that old man just don't do it, but here's a guy from another country doing it. Yeah. And immediately, that's it. It's just, you're yeah, just there. Perfect. <laughs> right away. And similarly here, you know, you're, you're, you're in a meeting. You talk about what you know. You talk about what you're comfortable about. Yeah. And if you're not comfortable about something, you don't. You don't just talk about it. Absolutely. Like finance and accounting and, you know, bottom yes, line. Yes, they <laughs> Not my business. People, you you, you command respect and you're able to talk to people um, comfortably and openly. Absolutely. What was your what's been the best experience? If you could choose one thing, what's been the best experience? God, so it was the project in Hong Kong with um Lian Feng. So I was originally I was originally taken on as a consultant um on a short-term contract to Basically, that they invested a lot of money in a sample room in the south of China in Dongguan. Yes, and they would produce eighty thousand samples a year. Um, so the the way it works, and I mean, like I said, they're the biggest sort of garment supplier anywhere in the world. Yes, and yeah. so out of those eighty thousand samples, the, the sort of market average, the, the hit rate, the sort of yield for every one hundred samples you make, you know, new designs, new creations, new sort of design, uh, garments. Um, out of every 100 garments you make, only eight of those end up getting sold. So 92 of those literally just go on a scrap heap. Wow. So the amount, the amount of resource, the amount of money, carbon, you know, air miles. That's yeah, it's huge. It's huge. I mean, you just think for one sample, you've got to order the yarn. It's going to cost you about three, $400 just for the raw material if you've not got it in stock already or in the right color. Then you need to program it. You need to design it. You need to, you know, get, get it on a machine. Um, that's going to cost you about another $100, $150 for the day or whatever. It's going to take to program and knit the fabric down. You need to get it sewn. You need to get it finished, you know, washed. So you, your environmental impact you know, starts straight away. Yeah. And then you send the sample off to, you know, New York or London or wherever, you know, five or six times it doesn't fit right, it doesn't look right, it doesn't feel right, et cetera, et cetera. You're talking $1,000 plus by the time you've, you've got one sample ready to show, ready to demonstrate. And so you can imagine 92 samples. So so the the, the problem that I was brought in to address was not to address this yield rate problem. It was to address the problem of how do we make the sample room more efficient because it's costing us so much to make these samples. How do we make this operation more streamlined, more efficient? So I spent the first sort of two months looking at that, reorganizing it, you know, doing a whole sort of hierarchical structure, reorganizing the whole sample room. And we got to where we could get it, but the, 
I knew how to, because I've been working, again, it's one of these things that I've been reading up on, I've been practicing, yes. um, doing sort of quietly in the background, and I knew how to sort of completely change their organization. And I had this idea, okay, what if we could virtually create a sample without having used an, you know, a gram of water, a gram of yarn, it's not gone anywhere, it's not flown anywhere, yet we're able to put in somebody's email inbox a picture of what that garment would look like on a person, real as damn it, all the stitches, all the designs, everything in 100% correct proportions, fitted you know, perfectly on a mannequin so that we wouldn't get, you know, it wouldn't be too loose on you know, your shoulder area, it wouldn't be too tight on the cuffs, all of that done in as many colors as they wanted without having expended any physical resource at all. And they could look at that garment and say, yeah, we like this. Can we have six, seven, eight different colorways or options or different block options in this? And we're able to provide all of this within five or six hours. That was my idea. So took it back to senior management at Lee and Fung, and they were a bit skeptical at first. Okay, people always want to see a garment. It's in a similar manner, if you can yeah. remember 10, 15 years ago, where the online sort of um, clothing market, retail market sort of started, people were a bit reluctant to buy clothing online. Absolutely. Because they wanted to touch it, they wanted to feel it. But look at it now, you look at Boohoo. You know, Absolutely. And so it was a slow beginning. It was a tough beginning because in the beginning it was like, yeah, you've got to prove this case to us. Um, you know, we're not prepared to put any money into this unless we see something tangible coming out over the other end. Is okay. it going to be worth that while? So I'd really, you know, so it was almost a sort of self-starting project within that organization. And sort of two, three months later, caught the eye, had a massive presentation. I think it was about 300 people turned up. Um, so I did a presentation to the full hall. Um, I had links with... Um, a few companies over in Japan invited them over to take part in the presentation. And at the end of it, um, pretty much it was a done deal. Wow. About, must have been about six months after that presentation, um, things moved really, really fast. I was training people by myself. You know, they were bringing in new design apprentices and I was taking them away from their first, their main role and said, I'm, I want these two people. I'm going to train them up to create virtual samples. Um, and then, yeah, within six months, six to 12 months of me sort of starting this project, out of those 80,000 garments on average that were being produced physically, um, we got it down to about uh, only 30,000 that were being produced physically and 50,000 of those were being produced virtually. So straight away, <laughs> do the maths and that's the amount of money that was being saved. It was yeah, immense. Huge, isn't it? And yeah, today... The environmental impact, it's massive. Yeah, and today, Liam Fung, um, every single sample, everything is being made virtually. That everything they send, sell, send into UK retailers, your Tesco's, your M&S, you name the UK retailer, it's, there, it's on that list. They have now adopted um, virtual sampling off the back of the work that I did. That's fantastic. That That's fantastic um, for the planet, for the industry. How amazing. That's that's really, really life-changing, isn't it? It is. And, and, you know, in today's climate where... You know, shipping and going into factories and being in manufacturing environments is sort of frowned upon. Um, I think this is a great answer to a lot of yeah, the problems. Yeah, it, 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 absolutely. It's it's uh, the planet, and uh, you're basically kind of you've created an amazing shortcut with cutting all the legwork out, which um, has benefits both on people, our environment money, everything. It's fantastic. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, fabulous. 
the, the, you know, especially in today's climate where yeah. factories are closed, people have to social distance, you might not get your sample technicians or your machinists or your machine operators coming in. The yeah. ability to yeah. do this has just set those organizations, you know, a, a mile apart from everyone else. Literally, a buyer can be sat at home approving orders or approving designs, approving samples without anyone being involved in any factory at all. Which is fantastic. And what would, what would have been your worst experience? Can you think of something that was really negative that you managed to turn into positive? Um, I think the biggest regret of my working life was perhaps, and this was more born out of desperation than anything else, was <laughs> a, a, a Faustian deal that I ended up making, basically because I needed the work. And I, I, and I, I could see this coming, but basically I... I decided to work with or alongside or for a, um, a management team or a certain manager who, for want of a better word, it was a yes man. Oh. Um, and, you know, they, they weren't comfortable knowing, you know, in their own knowledge, in their own ability. And they just basically needed people as, as nodding dogs to agree with whatever decisions they'd made. Oh. Um, and I kind of... You know, it's hurtful, it's painful, but, you know, you have to do what you have to do to pay the bills at the end of the day. Yeah. So thankfully that was quite short-lived. And again, it was, it was a regret and I should have been sort of bold enough and man enough to say, sorry, but this you're not doing this properly, you're not doing this right. Um, and those sort of stains are really, really hard to remove, you know, from your memory. But, you know, well, there we are. Well, I guess, at the end of the day, you know, they serve as a reminder that, um, yeah. you know, you made, sometimes we, we, we wander down the wrong paths and... It's it's just a lesson. It's just an example. It's just experience, and I think that's the best way to see it. It's just experience, and you'll know better yeah. next time. So, yeah, everyone does this. Everyone does this. Sometimes you you take a step in the wrong direction, but you can always go back. So, so yeah. you always change whatever you whatever you do. If you don't like something, you have the free will to change it, and I guess that's the the lesson out of it. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I've been very, very, very lucky in my life. Yeah. Um, so, like, you know, nothing's perfect. <laughs> you know, you, 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 you expect the odd sort of blemish. You, you, expect you do. The odd sort of... There's always going to be the odd thing. Who would have been the most inspiring manager that you've worked for? Oh, there are so many. Um, That's nice. <laughs> uh, like Not I him, said, obviously. <laughs> the one we just uh, talked about. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I'm just going to be boring again. Okay, lean The manager is, is uh, all right. I'm gonna I'll leave that aside. You know, it's, I'm gonna say my dad, but it's basically, um, you know, I've just learned so much from him and oh. he's been so inspiration to me. But I'd say probably um, I'm I'm not gonna tell tell you his name, um, but again, he was my direct line manager in Hong Kong, Amazing. Um, president. And was this he, at Lin Farm? Is this back at Lin Farm? Yeah. And he was one of those people that he just, you know, so experienced, so vastly sort of knowledgeable about everything um, in terms of business and how he, how he foresees or expects, expects is this people the, to react. Is this the guy that leads it? Is this the president? Because you're, I'll tell you a funny story. I was chatting with a friend of mine called Jason Chippett, who also is from within the industry, and he also knows him and says, I know exactly what you're going to say, because we were talking about it yesterday. <laughs> And he's like, it's not as though he's teaching you something. And, you know, he's not explicitly coming out and saying, no, this is not how I want you to do it. This is how I want you to do it. 
he, he would give examples, he, you know, of stuff that he's done in the past. Yeah. And how, it, how it turned out and how different people reacted to his decisions. And that's how he would educate you. He'd never talk down, even though, you know, there were a few mistakes. So I'd, I'd go over his head, you know, a couple of times. I'd go, I'd go around him when I was waiting for a decision and he wasn't quite ready to make that decision. I'd make that decision for him, go around his back and do it anyway. Because, you know, we were sort of socially quite close as well. Yeah, um, that's nice. Kind of okay, but I knew that he was a bit aggrieved and, you know, not, not too happy with me. Oh, but good. he would never display that. He would never show that anger. And he would Aww. sit me down and he would say, look, this is why I delayed this decision. This is why I didn't want to make this decision because I need to speak to X, Y, and Z because it might have upset them. And it's just, it's just great having somebody like that to look over. Yeah. It's almost like a second father figure. And it's just, and, you know, the stuff you learn off him, the... What was you know, the main had, thing? What did he teach you that really stuck in your mind? It was that when somebody makes a mistake, they don't make it on purpose. Or if somebody does something wrong, they've not done it on purpose. Nobody Absolutely. does those things willfully, willingly. Of course. And so the, there were a few incidents with um, factories around the world that perhaps weren't doing things properly. There were yeah. problems with production, problems with... That um, happens all the time, doesn't it? There are, there are a few ethical issues. So I thought, okay... Um, this needs to go higher up the chain um, because obviously this is beyond my remit and it's quite serious and it needs looking at. And I elevated it to the relevant people and he came back, he can basically came down on me and said, look, you shouldn't have done this. You should realize you should have tried to find out why they've done this, why they've done what they've done. There's always a nice. Yeah. And, and if that factory now ends up, you know, being penalized or, a mistake that you know was unavoidable. Yeah, for a mistake that, that was avoidable, but they, you know, they obviously didn't they or moment. whatever the reason. It's, it's not just going to impact the factory; it's going to impact the three thousand workers that work in that factory. Mm. But not it's going to be on your head. So you need to find a way out where you can work together with people and work these things out together. And it's just little anecdotes and examples like that that re- have really helped to sort of okay, yeah. So it's not we're, we're not so really you escalate something. Get all the facts. Yeah, it's it's not black and white. But, you know, there's always a grey area and get, get into that and help people. Don't, yeah. don't, don't make a first reaction, you know. Don't make a fuss at the very beginning. Go and delve into what happened, get all the details. Absolutely understand it, understand it from their perspective. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, it's not a speed camera, you know, it's not black and white. No, it's not black and white. Not black I think that's and a very good analogy. Yeah. Absolutely. Very, very good analogy. And I guess you answered my next my next question. My next question was going to be who was your least inspiring boss, but I think it goes back to Mr. Yes Man. So yeah. we'll take that as the example there. And it's, yeah, because it's that, like never, never, fi- never. Probably. I mean, it's like never find yourself having to make that Faustian deal where you, you end up selling your soul for something, you know? And yeah, it, yeah. You know, because it's not it's not just you; it's the people around you and the people, it's the people that, around you. Absolutely. It, it doesn't benefit anybody. Yeah. No. Yeah. Because it's... You, I mean, look, you, you're hired for a reason. You're hired for... Because somebody wants a part of you. Somebody wants something that you've got. That, yeah. That ability, that Let's see some skill. of your knowledge. Yeah. And if you, if you change as a person once you start working in that role, then that's not why they've hired you. So you're not doing yourself any favours. You're not doing them any favours. So. Very true. Very, very true. I absolutely agree. I think that's, that's a really good point. You know, many industries are going to be impacted by coronavirus. In a perfect world, how do you think the fashion landscape is going to look on the other side? We're edging towards it. <laughs> um, so, 
we've got to... I, I think this is just a short-term bump in the road. Okay. When I say short-term, I mean, you know, maybe a season, two seasons. Right. We'll be over. But I think we've got to learn the lessons and adapt. What are the lessons? In the sense that we can't... For example, showrooms, sample rooms are closed right now. They can't produce yeah. garments. So if we can do work virtually, if we can eliminate some of that work, we know, we're still able to produce samples virtually. We're still able to fit samples virtually. We're still yeah. able to do designs and colorways virtually. So, so you're basically thought, saying we need to embrace technology. We need to embrace technology and we know it works. Absolutely. If it didn't work, then the UK High Street wouldn't have adopted it. How could the have... smaller brands get get in get in on the action with the virtual so, side of things? How can they? Maybe they don't have the resources. Maybe they're not sure where to go. How can so they the, gain access to this technology? The, the main problem that we seem to have now in the West as a whole is that maybe 30, 40 years ago, we used to have a massive clothing and textile industry. That's right. So we we could take people, you know, with a high level of expertise, you know, high level of skill and bring them into perhaps the office environment um, and retrain them or reskill them to be able to work with technology, something that you know, they knew the end result of what it was going to be, but obviously worked on, uh, on the other side of the fence, as it were. Mm-hmm. That's no longer the case now. So it's in, in Hong Kong, Bangladesh, you know, places in the Far East, Vietnam, Indonesia, they do have machinery, they do have factories. So people can literally leave college, school, university, go into these factories, learn a trade, and then off the back of that knowledge, start creating virtual samples. We don't have that luxury over here. And that is the reason why we struggle so, to find... Yeah. Do we therefore need to find a way of harnessing that over in these countries that's accessible so, for businesses of all levels? So we do have the ability, and that lies at universities, um, okay. you know, degree courses, design courses, and fashion you know, degree courses. They need courses. to embrace it. They need, to, they need to embrace it. They need to almost say, look, you know, we're doing pattern cutting. Okay, if we do, if we change our pattern cutting from using maybe a Gerber flat, you know, table plotting thing yeah. onto using CLO or Browseware or one of these other alternatives. Yeah. We can then virtually sew the garments together and fit it onto a mannequin. Hold on a minute. This is exactly what Tesco and Marks and Spencers and Sainsbury's, all these people are after. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden, by changing, making that slight tweak, all of a sudden, they become 100% more employable because that's what these brands are after. So yeah. a smaller retailer, mm-hmm. you know, if some if a graduate has left university, they're comfortable using Clover Browseware, which is $50 a month subscription. All of a sudden, they've got in-house virtual sampling where they can create a garment in-house, fit it, make sure it works, make sure it fits right, and literally send that tech pack over to a factory in the Far East. The first garment they'll get, they'll get back will look right and it will feel right and it will fit right. And that's it's a small change, but, but it's just the knowledge and the know-how and I guess that, you know, being comfortable in their own skin and being confident enough to hire that person. It's just that leap but of we faith. We need to find that ways to get this knowledge out there into the um, education establishment so that they understand what industry needs. So there needs to be a greater partnership between industry and education, basically. So uh, let me give you an example. So uh, Lee and Fung, the, the, the last, when I, while I was there, the last batch of graduates that they took on Normally, they would take on designers, you know, design interns. Yeah. Last year that I was there, um, they only took on design interns that had a knowledge or working knowledge of virtual sampling as part of their degree course because you had universities in Hong Kong. Interesting, who were, that were teaching 
who are teaching virtual sampling um, as part of their course. And is that because there's a good connection between education and um, industry? So exactly. the education establishments know what industry needs because they've been telling them and they're listening? Well, industry, for example, Lee and Fung, you know, your main professors, your main course tutors from universities were in the Infung office yeah. anyway. You know, to learn that to pick up that they were sort of co-developing technology and techniques for industry so they were, they were there anyway so they were, they were privy to these conversations it's a bit they like could the then model. in in the uh, that exist around the world it's the same, same kind of philosophy so what, what ended up happening was graduates or interns that we were taking from local hong kong universities they would go straight into work whereas graduates or interns from around the world so from nottingham trent or other places they would spend the first two three months learning how to do stuff and they were inevitably, you know, lagging behind the, the sort of the rest of the, the guys in the office. And that was a bit of a shame. So, I mean, I can try and, um, you know, I can try and talk to universities as much as I want, but I guess that the sort of, it's that old adage, isn't it? You know, people don't want to change because they're not comfortable with change. And Well, maybe coronavirus, or maybe that will be something that will come, that maybe that'll be a good legacy from the coronavirus in that, people recognise that we have to embrace change and things do need to shift. And perhaps people will now on the other side of this be more open-minded. Like I said at the beginning of this sort of conversation, unless you change and adapt and try and stay ahead That's of the right. game, there are always others willing to take your place. And all it will take is, you know, a couple of design institutes in Italy or New York. Yeah. Um, and, you yeah. know, for them to start, start, you know, adopting virtual sampling or start working with these people all of a sudden, our design interns are suddenly not wanted anymore. Yeah. So it's, again, it's that trying to stay ahead and trying to realise what's stay going ahead. on. Yeah, and I think that's really a really, really valid point and, you know, something that will most definitely inspire people, anybody listening to this, to perhaps think about that. So thank you for sharing that with us. I think that's that's fantastic. And if um, if you could work for any brand or any company in the world, it could be your own, it could be, it could be anything, who would it be and who would be the three people that you'd want on your team and why? But is it like yeah. an aspirational brand that you really love, that, you know, you've, somebody that you'd absolutely love to go and work for, that, that you, you admire, you think they're doing something great? I think, but obviously this being topical, um, you know, the environment and the sort of space yeah. I'm working in at the moment with work with um, wearable tech. Yeah. It's going to become a big thing. So, and, and, the, and the great thing about the product we're developing at Prevail is that you wear a garment and you don't even know that it's plugged in. We don't even know that it's live and it's made. Amazing. Yeah. Clever. Great in your hydration. And all of a sudden you get you get a whole series of metrics together. So if you do get a cluster of a certain illness or a virus breaking out in a certain part of the world, you know, there's a pattern that always leads up to it. Um, and we can start analyzing and predicting that pattern. So we Hopefully, you should be able to tell you two, three days later on, or two, three days before you actually get something. This series of, you know, biosignals that we're getting from your body tells us that you're about to come down with, you know, disease X, Y, or Z, or this virus. Look after yourself, or go and see a doctor. That is the space I think that we're going to see ourselves in after this lockdown, after this virus, when the dust settles. Um, so, to me, clothing, clothing. You can find a million manufacturers around the world who make clothing, but. It's not so much the company or the brand, it's the space and the people you work with and what the, the role and the t- Basically, it's got to be interesting. You want to get you want to get out of bed in the morning and work on something that's going to challenge you. Absolutely. Hopefully it's going to change the world. Um, so it's, 
you know, you can work for the best, biggest, well-known brand in the world and you end up with an office full of <laughs> basically, you know, middle managers that I won't mention. Um, yeah. And at the same time, you can work, work for a startup with, you know, the most creative and inspiring people that you've ever met. I mean, the team I'm with now is, is kind of almost scary. Some of the people, you know, three or four of us, if we were standard, stranded on a desert island, we wouldn't be there for long. We'd figure out a way of getting off it. <laughs> so you're basically telling me here that I placed you in your dream job. <laughs> <laughs> it's just there's some, some of the people here, it's like, it's like the collection of the world's best at what we do. And That's so you know, nice. nothing that people here don't know about their own field, you know, that... Yeah. I mean, there, there are there are people out there developing, you know, electrodes and spending fifty, sixty million pounds on developing one electrode that, you know, I've spent four days and I've done something better than they've done in six months, and it's because the team here believes in you. They give you the chance. You don't have to. They don't question you at every turn, and they don't ask why you do. They know that you're good at what you do. Just get on. Yeah, they it. just let you get on with it. They let you have a free reign. They trust you. They're not interested yeah, in micromanaging what you're doing. Have, yeah, yeah you'll, you'll have a catch up every so often, and yeah. then and then you, you meet up, and then oh, okay, I didn't realize you wanted this. Okay, fine, I'll change this to meet your expectations, and that's how it. And it's, that's it's brilliant. Be. Yeah, because you're you're treated like an adult, and you're you're you know your knowledge is respected, and you're entrusted to go and do what you do. And it's down to that whole pretense of them having faith in you, and yeah. you know you having faith in yourself. So. You know, you, you'll go to certain organisations and they'll be, you know, they'll say to you, why have you done this? Because I told my manager you'll be doing this. Yeah. Whereas here, it's completely different. They just let you get on and they know that you know what you're doing. Yeah. And and they're not somebody who knows less than you know about your own job is trying to dictate to you how to do things. That's no. not the way. No, that's not the way. That's brilliant. I think that's I think that's a fantastic note on which to end. And um really leave people inspired it's been so interesting to talk and hear you share your experience and thank you so much for coming on more talent today it's been brilliant pleasure thank you very much fiona determination is a common thread throughout this series epitomized with great effect by naeem riaz who tells us of his mission to stay ahead of the competition by always being a step ahead at Lean Fong, we learn how he paved the way for a cost-effective, leaner, greener development process that enabled buyers to view and fit products using 3D sampling. And hear how he is currently immersed at the cutting edge of technology, innovating smart clothing supported by 5G at Prevail. If you enjoyed this episode, join me next time when I will be speaking with Alexander Giansis about luxury fashion and the seasonal sales cycle. If you are enjoying the series, hit the subscribe button to receive notifications on upcoming episodes where you'll get to hear first-hand insights from across the global fashion and creative industries. 